All right. Hey, good morning, everyone. Blessings. So good to see you on this, the Lord's day. How good is it for us to be together on Sunday sharing? I know it's not like we usually do, but I'm so thankful to be able to have this moment with you as we have church together here online. You know, even now, Lord, I ask for you to just be present among us. I, I pray that you would just bless this time that we're about to share and, you know, let our hearts be open open to your words, because I know you have wisdom for us. And so we just welcome you right into this time. Give us the ability to focus. Let us hear a word within the word that you have uniquely framed for us. We ask this in Jesus name. Amen. All right. Our series, as we mentioned, up and over how to live the overcoming life of faith. Our focus on probably one of the most remarkable figures in all of scripture, a stunning example of what it means to trust God and to walk with the Lord faithfully, even when things are hard. We're talking about a man, a young man named Joseph. Our situation, where we left off last week, you remember that Joseph had just been sold by his brothers. As incredibly painful as that statement was and is, he was sold for 20 shekels to a group of Midianite traders, Ishmaelite traders, as they were sometimes called on their way to Egypt. It was awful. We read about what happened as soon as he gets to Egypt. Genesis 39 is where we'll begin right now. Verse number one, it says, when Joseph was taken to Egypt by the Ishmaelite traders, he was purchased by Potiphar, an Egyptian officer. And Potiphar was captain of Pharaoh's guard. He wasn't just any man. He was captain of the guard for Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And let us just for a moment, if we can pull back from that place and go to that, that spot where the Bible doesn't say that much, the space between when Joseph was sold by his brothers in Dothan and the slave markets in Egypt, when he was purchased by Potiphar. In that space, we know that Joseph would have been part of a caravan, a caravan that would have um, put him in a place that was almost unimaginably difficult, painful. We know that his hands were bound. In fact, in Psalms 105, it says that an iron collar was placed around his neck. Joseph was in such a, a bad place, mean, his treatment at the hands of his brothers the night before was bad enough. If you recall, he had been thrown into a pit and they had talked openly about killing him. His own brothers, they hated him. They despised him, held him in such contempt. And I think from a distance, he could hear them. He was crying out, brothers, let me out. Help me, please be merciful. What's wrong? What are you doing? Fell on deaf ears. They just wanted to get rid of him. It was Judah. And maybe Joseph heard it as they were ironically eating the provisions that he had brought them while they were discussing his death. It was Judah, one of the brothers who spurred, first spotted the caravan in a distance. He saw it coming by and that idea came to him. Let's sell, let's sell Joseph. We don't have to kill him. We'll just sell him. We'll be done with him forever. It was understood. To sell someone to be a slave in Egypt was essentially like giving them a death sentence. People would 
would go there and never come back. Once you got into the slave pits of Egypt, your fate was sealed. And so when Judah came up with the idea and they pulled him out of the pit and Joseph began to realize what they were doing, I, I can only imagine him pleading with them, brothers, what are you doing? Don't do this. Stop. No, no. And as they bound him, we, we know they sold him 20 shekels. And I can imagine Joseph saying, what are you doing, my brothers? And I can hear them saying back at him, that's what your dreams get you. Big man now, you're in charge. Where's your coat? You know, just turned their back on him, wrote him off. And there is Joseph, maybe in a cart with others. His tears streaming down his face. He's in pain. What is happening? He looked around him. Maybe there were others there. He saw in their eyes, emptiness, hopelessness, others struggling, the groans, the pain, the heat. And then the day that followed, you know, the dust, the dust of the desert caked on him, just utterly miserable as they made their way down south finally approaching Egypt. Perhaps Joseph thought about all that had happened. His father, who he would never see again, whom he loved. How, how what would they tell him? He knew, he knew his fate was sealed, seemed hopeless, would never see his father again. It just added to his, the crushing blow, the betrayal. How, what do you do? What do you do? Um, what do you do when you're stuck between pain and a need to survive? Joseph did, I think, what he was trained to do. I think he prayed. I think he cried. I think he wept. I think he groaned. And I think he prayed. And I think as he came into Egypt, first saw it from a distance, and then he must have been struck by some of what he saw. For we know that at that time, the pyramids that we now still see and admire today must have looked like they were literally bursting out of the ground. These stunning works, buildings, just remarkable architecture of the ancient times. We know that the Great Pyramid for 4,000 years was the tallest building in the world. I mean, what we're talking about is sophistication. Joseph would have noticed that. He would have noticed other things. Remember, he was a monotheist. It would have been impossible to miss all the gods of Egypt. Egypt was filled with idolatry, polytheistic idolatry, statues, half men, half beast, uh, just everywhere. Everywhere he looked, he would have noticed it. He would have seen it. The art, the beautiful art, the colors, all that Egypt was. And then to be thrown and brought to the slave markets and the ugliness of humanity for it is one of the worst expressions of humanity. And Joseph was, was brought there and you would have thought that perhaps at this point, Joseph would have said, what good is God? Um, maybe he decided as he was on his way that I just need to just try to survive and do whatever I can to adapt to Egyptian ways, new realities, 
but it will become clear, crystal clear, that that was precisely what Joseph did not do. As we shall see, there was a, a genuineness to his faith, a tenacity to his faith. We might call it a stickiness to it that was not dependent on things going his way. It was hardy, it was sturdy, highly adaptable, capable of surviving. Even under the most adverse circumstances, his faith would hold. And I want to suggest that there's a principle here for us just right at the beginning. And that is this, that God wants us, you and me, to nurture um, a highly adaptable faith that is nimble, that is sticky, that is that can hold, right? That in times like these, maybe it matters even more. Where we're in a difficult season, a season with a lot of questions. And there's a lot of us who are discouraged and feeling a little bit down by the relentlessness of what we're having to deal with. And this is a time when the Lord wants our faith to be like Joseph's, highly adaptable. You know, whatever Joseph's immaturity and youthful limitations were, and they were real, we know that. What will become clear is that he had, as I mentioned, a a genuine love for the one true God of Israel. He believed in and served the God of his forefathers, the God of Abraham, the God of his grandfather, Isaac, right? And then of course, Jacob, his father, whom he loved. That God, the God of Israel, the God of his fathers, he would not betray. No, nothing would shake it. He's suffered already unquestionable horror, his pain, his plight, his future looked gone, but he would not yield. He would not yield his heart. No, at his core, he was fastened. And we are told it was the great man of authority, a military man, one of Pharaoh's most trusted men, uh, the captain of his guard, the key to his security, Potiphar. This was the man who bought him. I, I tried to imagine that day as Potiphar made his way to the slave market to purchase. And he scanned the lot. And what did he see? His eyes cast a glance. He looked at Joseph looked into those eyes, maybe noticed something different. Who is that one? That foreigner? See one of those Hebrews? I want him. Bring me him, the foreigner. Bring him to me. That's the one I want. And so it begins. So it begins. Verse two, we're told that the Lord though was with Joseph. What a great verse this is. He was bought, he was sold, yes. But the Lord was with Joseph. And so he succeeded in everything he did as he served in the home of his Egyptian master. I love the phrase, the Lord was with him. God did not abandon him. Even though he had lost everything, he did not lose the Lord. The Lord was with him. The Lord's hand was on him, prospered him, kept him, blessed him, favored him. Even in this undesired and painful place, Verse three, Potiphar noticed this. He did. He took notice. He saw 
this young man had the golden touch and he realized in his own way that the Lord was with Joseph, giving him success in everything he did. What was clear to Potiphar was that this Hebrew was unusual. He quickly perceived that Joseph excelled at whatever he did and possessed a kind of unique capacity, a gift, if you will, a capacity that the text implies that Potiphar uh, associated almost, I don't know, superstitiously with Joseph's God. So it says, this pleased Potiphar, so he soon made Joseph his personal attendant. He promoted him to a place of great power in his household. He put him in charge of the entire household and everything that he owned. I mean, that... Think about that. From the, from the day Joseph was put in charge of his master's household and property, the Lord began to bless Potiphar's household for Joseph's sake, and all his household affairs ran smoothly, we're told, and his crops and his livestock, they just flourished. I mean, his business took off. And I think it's important to remember that Joseph's success came within the framework of limitation. This is really important for us. Remember, Joseph was not free. It's true, things could have been much worse. <laughs> I mean, there's no question about it. He could have ended up just dying in a pit with no name, like so many of those who had been enslaved had done before him. He could have had it so differently than to be in the house of Potiphar, to be able to be in this place of relative privilege, if we can say it that way. Most of his needs met. He wasn't suffering. And yet, at the same time, he was not free. And he would trade it all for his freedom. The freedom that he could not acquire, nor did he ever envision ever possessing it. He was in a foreign land, disconnected from his family, from his father, and everything he loved. And he could not go back. Yes, it could have been worse, but... His heart was still broken. You know, one of the things, though, that I think it, we all know, as it, it, it'll show up here, that is so clear, is that Joseph did not feel abandoned by the Lord. And it's a reminder, and this is a great principle for you and me, that God doesn't promise that if we love and serve him, he, we will be delivered from every problem. I mean, Joseph still had a huge issue, couldn't get out of but what we are promised is that the Lord will be with us in every problem. So we're not promised that we will, we will be delivered from every problem, but we are promised that he will be with us in every problem, in every situation. And in Joseph's case, and this is usually what's going to happen, I've noticed that within the limitation of our problems, we will find that the Lord can allow us to be blessed and succeed. That the framework of limitation does not necessarily impede God's capacity to bless us. That doesn't always mean that we're going to get out of the situation we're in the way that we want it to happen or in the timing we want it to happen. But what it does mean is that while we're in it, there is the capacity with God's help to flourish even in the place that we do not want to be in, to prosper in the place where we feel trapped and stymied and hindered and honestly captive. We can prosper there still. You know, Joseph could not see his future. He, he had no way of knowing that the house of Potiphar was in reality a place of preparation, that he was actually being prepared to deliver his people. Couldn't see that. 
that years later he would discern that those dreams he was given, they were given for a reason. God had a purpose in mind. But it's worth noting, because some of us may feel like this is where we are right now, that we find ourselves in a confining place, a difficult place where our freedom is hindered. I know I've felt that way just being in this season. It feels like we're almost trapped. It feels like we've been trapped. Like, like so much of our life is limited. And yeah, I know things can be worse, but it just feels hard and uncomfortable. And yet one of the things we realize that in the difficult place, the confining place can be and is often a place of growth and preparation. And you know, um, but I think it's dependent a lot of times on what we're willing to do in terms of, of just, you know, holding on to the Lord. I think it's, it's, it's essential, for example, to, to shift our mindset as much as, much as possible into a growth mode that we, that we reaffirm, as Joseph did, our trust for God, no matter what our situation is, no matter how much we feel like we're bound by it. We, we are not to let go of our trust in God. We are to hold that ferociously, hold on to it. And hold on to it in the way that he's going to model with a great, I know it, it seems incredible, but the attitude, the quality, the way in which Joseph operates within the context of that limitation is so powerful. It's so meaningful and beneficial for us to understand. It's a great model for us. You know, I, I, I've also found that rarely does God expose his parallel purpose you know, usually it's not until like when we're going through something that's not good, you know, sometimes people will go, well, why did God allow this? Now I am, I often say that there's a difference between, you know, to say, it's okay to say God allowed it, but don't say God caused it because the things that happen in our life, a lot of times have to do with choices that people make, choices we make, choices that other people make that affect us. We live in a broken world. Things don't work right. That's the same world that God came into to save, right? He, he himself was not, um, you know, kept from the consequences of evil. He bear, bear, bore the shame and the iniquity and the guilt and the violence. So the, the Lord did not exempt himself. We're not exempt from it either. We live in this world. We make choices. Our decisions affect things. And yet on a parallel track, God is at work. That's kind of what the scriptures remind us of to always re remember that it can, it's not an either or it's a both and. And if we can remind ourselves that if we just walk with him and trust him, that all things ultimately um, can work for good. That's, that's honestly, that's Romans eight twenty eight, right? It says this, and a lot of us know this verse, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. When we put our life in his hands, what we know is that although everything may not go the way we wanted it to go, God is at work and his goodness will prevail. One way or another, God's goodness will prevail. Uh, later on, Joseph would say in one of the most remarkable moments in all of scripture, he would say to his brothers years down the road, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And both were true. They meant it for evil, their cruelty. There was no excuse for it. It could not be dismissed or somehow suggested that it was anything other than that. 
It was bad. What they did was bad. And yet Joseph says, but God used it for a, a purpose. He used it for a purpose. He used it for good. And so both things can be true. We can be in the middle of a bad situation and God can still be working it for good. That's how he does it. So, so God's sovereignty and our free will, it's not like they're in exclusive camps. They're intertwined and they work together and they run on parallel tracks. And so, you know, in Joseph's case, and we're going to dive into this further next week, this place was a place of preparation for him and a place of revealing. And what I mean by that is Joseph is going to be tested, deeply tested. He has no idea what awaits him. His, his character, <laughs> the essential nature of who he is, and is going to be revealed and formed by what he experiences. You know, I was reminded of a, of a, a, a statement because we're talking about character. I was because Joseph had it. He had it. I was reminded of a statement made almost now 150 years ago by a clergyman. He actually was a pastor, a man named Philip Brooks. He lived to only be 58 years old. He died, relatively speaking, young. He was in an era where people didn't live as long, but his contribution was enormous. Some of us may have no knowledge of his name, but he left actually a, a little bit of a legacy that still lives on. People still sing a song that he wrote for Christmas called O Little Town of Bethlehem. That was Philip Brooks. But Philip Brooks also had a lot of other things that he shared. One of the things he said, a statement he made, still rings true a century and a half later. He said this about character and I've, I was impressed by it. And it reminded me of Joseph. He said, character may be manifest in great moments, but it is made in the small ones. Character may be manifest and revealed in great moments, but it is made in the small ones. That's where it's forged. That's so profound. I hope we get that. Little moments, alone moments, no one noticing moments. Those are the places where character is formed. That's where the character that shows up in the great places grows. It's in the little places, the small places. That's, it's often where the struggle takes place, where the real battle is being fought. Those are the places where ground is gained or ground is lost. You know, we live in a culture, you know, just thinking about character and compliance you know, we, and the difference between the two. You know, we live in a culture and a society where words are assessed, judged, and determinations of acceptability are made on the basis of, of compliance to dominant norms. I mean, forced compliance seems to be all the rage these days. But of course, forced compliance tells us more about the culture than a person. In God's economy, it's always about the heart and it's always about character. And that is a very different measuring rod of quality, isn't it? As followers of Jesus, let us be far more concerned about pleasing God than people. Uh, and let's focus more on our character as God defines it than on compliance as a churning culture defines it. A culture, by the way, that will have different values and different aspirations and different things that are deemed important a generation from now. 
human beings, cultures shift and change, but God's ways, they endure the generations. You know, Joseph is being prepared and that preparation is going to involve a few key critical choices and decisions that he is going to have to make under great pressure. I mean, intense stuff. He's going to be put into positions where he's got to make heavy decisions. And um, that's where his character is really going to shine. That's where his confidence and his trust in God and the essential consistency uh, of who he is, is going to really show up again. The great moment of pressure is a product of a series of little choices that were made by Joseph on a, on a daily basis. If I can put it that way, and I'll talk about that in a bit, but I've noticed this, that pressure and duress and adversity and difficult seasons, um, they call out the best in us. And in, and in that sense, they, they present us with unique opportunities because when, when we're in a difficult place, when we're in a hard season, when things are, are, you know, boring in on us and we feel, feel the heat and everything in us wants to quit. You know, we're either going to fold up or we're going to grow up like that vine growing over, over a wall, going up and over. We're either going to get stopped in our tracks or we're going to keep moving, keep trusting, keep running this race of faith that we've been given. We're either going to concede, just lay down and die, or we're going to improve. There are these these times in our lives where, where we are brought to places where the, the, the th things aren't going to be the same. Like we're either, they, we can't, they do not allow us the ability to be neutral. We're either going to fall backwards or we're going to move forward. We're either going to be defeated by it or we're going to learn how to overcome it. These places that we do not want, these seasons that we're not looking for, that we would rather avoid, these are the very places where our faith is forged. And I call them opportunities. And I, I've seen it in my own life. They are opportunities because they, they can send us into a place of expansion and depth. Like we, we can become much deeper people in that regard and, and, and much more mature followers of Jesus. Like we, we really can grow in these places that we do not want. They are, though we don't want them, the opportunities to have real expansion in our heart. And that's where God does some of his best character work right there because we're forced to decide. And, you know, I'm going to take it one more step further and say that a lot of times just putting together the, the statement that was made by Philip Brooks, about the, the importance of small things. I'm going to make the, make the case that there's a connection between the daily choices we make and how we show up in places of great intensity when character and integrity is required. Like that, the, the reason we prevail in times of great pressure is always connected to how we've been committing ourselves in times of small pressure, like how we live on a daily basis will really be what shows up when everything is on the line. I hope you're hearing me. I try to remind myself of this. That's one of the reasons why the Lord taught us in his prayer about the importance of the daily. He said, give us this day, our daily bread, pray this way.
Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's almost like the Lord is saying, for that to happen, there needs to be a dailiness to our life with him. Do we understand that? Like, like, like the strength to prevail is also going to be connected to the dailiness of our life with the Lord. And I think that's one of the reasons, I mean, we clearly need the one in seven, the va there's value in doing what we're doing right now. We are having Sabbath. We are in a sense, gathering together for a teaching. Now I look forward to the day when we can gather together actually in presence, but we are still gathering together, creating space to hear the words of the Lord. In that regard, we were actually following the pattern of Jesus who made that his practice when he was on earth. If, if the Lord did that, if he did that, if he modeled that, if he modeled going to church, if you will, then how much more should we? So what we're doing is the right thing. But the one in seven can never replace the consistency of the one, the day by day. That the other six days are, are also important because they set the tone for a character and for a vital relationship with the Lord. The, the life in Christ was for it to work right. It, it is a daily thing. Give us this day, our daily bread. That's why we are to bring ourselves, even if it's in a modest way. That's why I talk about things like rise and shine, just trying to keep us all connected and reminded of the dailiness, right? But if we, we are to bring ourselves before the Lord each morning to, to be open to the new things that the Lord wants to speak to us every morning, we're to invited to rise up and embrace him. Every day is a new beginning. You guys, every day, a new beginning, every day, each day, an opportunity to say again, a new, a fresh Lord, I belong to you and your words and your love. They matter to me. Lord, I love you this day. I tell you, I love you. And I sing my praise to you. I sing that song to you. Help me then to live this day. This day, help me to live the life you want me to live. I wish I can say that I always do that, that at the end of the day, I have a sense of satisfaction that I have done well. It's not about being perfect. We're not going to ever get there. Joseph wasn't perfect, but it is about committing ourselves to living a life of integrity, to building a character, to forging it out in the small things, small things matter. Small things matter. Small choices of obedience matter. Small prayers matter. You add them up and they create a kind of quality in us that shows up when everything is on the line. You know what I'm saying? You, we're going to see it modeled. Now, maybe some of us are under, you know, significant duress. Maybe that's where we find ourselves right now. Maybe we're being tempted to give up or yield or um, fall back into negative places or addictive patterns, or maybe we've been struggling with some of our relationships and part of us just wants to give up. Maybe we're feeling very afraid and we want to just yield to those fears and just become, allow ourselves to be negative and, and, um, or complacent and just kind of, you know, not do anything or just numb ourselves with, with things that are not of quality. I'm going to suggest that there might be places right now where we, where we are being tested and stretched and where we're wrestling with decisions that are going to not just affect us, but they're going to affect people, people we love. Yes. And 
So what I'm asking is, are there, are there small places where the Lord is asking us to exercise great integrity? Are there small, are there little places where God is asking us to, to exercise big integrity? No one will see it. Just you and me, Lord. Oh God, I feel like I failed you, but I know you love me. I want to be the kind of man I want. We might say, I want to be the kind of man. I want to be the woman that you want me to be, Lord. Help me to show up for you to make the decisions like Joseph makes. When I have every reason to, to turn, but I'm not going to. I'm going to commit myself all the more to a genuine faith. You know, at some point this season is going to come to a close. And one of the questions will be, what have we learned? That's one of those questions that we're going to need to ask. What have I learned at this time? Another question will be, who have I become? So what have we learned and what will we become during this time, this time, this season? Now, I don't know how it's going to end. Is it going to end rapidly or is it going to end gradually? I just know one thing. It's going to come to a close and we're going to transition to a different place. When we do, can we look back and say, Lord, I've been growing. It's not too late to commit ourselves to really paying attention and giving attention and nurturing small things. They matter. They show up. And I really want us to keep that in mind. We've got a song to share. I'm going to come back. I've got one final little thought to share, and then I want to bless you. Remember, this is the time to give our time that we sort of take to acknowledge that. So many of you have been absolutely amazing. You can give in a number of different ways. Your tithes and your offerings allows us to keep doing what we're doing together under the Lord. You can do it online. You can do it on your app. That's what I do. You can do it the traditional way, send it in, whatever is in your heart to do. Um, but you are all pretty amazing, and I love you. Hey, let's share this song, and then uh, I'll close this up. It's a 
Genesis 39 to the verse we read earlier, it said God was with Joseph, but God. And you know what? The Lord is with you and he's with me too. I probably would be in despair and a little discouraged. I'm not saying I never get discouraged, but I know God is with me and he's with us. He's not abandoned us. He's not left us to ourselves. He's with us his hand, his goodness, his grace. He loves you and he loves me too. God is so good, he's so good, he's so God. And he wants us to so good and so God. You know, may the Lord keep you. May the Lord bless you. Even in our place of, of confinement and feeling hindered, may you prevail. Yeah, that's my prayer. In your spirit, in your body, and in your soul, may you be kept. You're greatly loved. And may the banner over your life be the banner of his love. Till I see you again, 